We're in Romans 12, and we come now to these one-liners. Nancy read them for us. We'll be in this week here, next week. All of these one-liners that go all the way to the end of chapter 12, we'll finish out chapter 12 next week, all of these one-liners are founded in the life of Jesus, which is to say the, the shape and the substance of each practice commended to us here. These are practices we are to engage in following Jesus. Every one of them, the shape and the substance comes from Jesus' own life. Now, I've told you before, and I think it bears repeating, particularly for our context as we grow up in churchianity and religiosity, the quickest way to get discouraged in your faith is to see Jesus only as an example. He's perfect. And so Jesus has to be our Savior before he can be in our, our example. He is our example. But he's our example after he becomes our Savior. Never hold up Jesus' life as a model until you hold up Jesus' grace as a refuge. We've got to have both. Only in relationship with Jesus, hear this, because you look at these one-liners and I think your eyes glaze over. It's like, oh, stuff to do. Only in relationship with Jesus do these kinds of ways of living follow. Only in relationship with Jesus do these ways of living make any sense. Because, well, you read them, you're looking at them, you realize these run a bit counter to the pattern of the world and that these one-liners here before us, what do they necessitate? They, they necessitate a lot of self-giving. Self-giving from which you may not get a return. But this is at the heart of Christian ethics. Christian ethics are interested in transcending self-interest, not by losing the self or hating the self, but by submitting the self to the authority of Jesus Christ as the God over all. Only Jesus is compelling enough to begin to, from the inside out, shape and, and change the motivational structures of our hearts enough for us to want to transcend self-interest. If not for Jesus, I, I'm just not that altruistic. I'm not that good. Last week, we began considering how God resources us to obey him. We looked at spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8, and we talked about the resources God gives us uh, as they are aimed for getting us out of ourselves and into others. Others who we see now, as the text goes on, others are both insiders and outsiders. You see both insiders and outsiders here in verses 9 through 13. For instance, looking at verse 10, love one another. Who's one another? It's us. This is for insiders with whom, insiders being people we, with whom we share a mutual allegiance to Jesus. But then you've got hospitality, where we stopped reading. Verse 13, seek to show hospitality, last part of verse 13. Hospitality is, also involves love because hospitality is literally the love of the stranger. That's what the word hospitality uh, means. You, you've heard of the word xenophobia. If you're xenophobic, you know what the, those words literally mean is that, is that you're afraid, a phobia, of the xenos, the stranger. Well, hospitality in Greek is xenophilia. I don't often quote Greek words for you, but it's fitting here. Love, philia, of the stranger, xenos. Hospitality 
is love of strangers. It has in view those outside the church primarily. To them we extend the love that we express to one another inside, but don't reserve that love for one another exclusively. The difference between loving insiders, one another, and outsiders, the love of hospitality, the difference is I expect insiders to love me back. I don't expect the same thing from outsiders. We'll talk about all this this week and next. I want to give you two simple headings for this sermon. This sermon's not a a three-point outline. It's two simple headings under which we can put the practices that we're looking at this morning just in verses 9 through 13. I want to talk about this from the vantage point of insider practices and outsider practices, putting this very simply. And essentially how this will run is that verses 9 and 10 are insider practices, one another, Verse 11 is kind of the pivot to then verses 12 and 13. I'll put under outsider practices. I recognize the first half of verse 13 in contributing to the needs of the saints is an insider practice. The saints are those who share a mutual regard, admiration, affiliation, allegiance, love for Jesus. But contributing to the needs of the saints would look beyond just your local church to the church universal. And so in that sense, we'll give some elasticity to outsider, but primarily with outsider, we're thinking of those not in Christ. So first, two headings today under which all these one-liners will sit. Let's talk first about insider practices, and then we'll talk about outsider practices. Insider practices, verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, you could ask why, why should I, and not necessarily be contrarian. In fact, you probably ought to ask why as you read the Bible more often than you do, because why is not automatically a smart off question, it's often clarifying. A lot of times in my preaching, I I concentrate with you on the why. We talk about the how and the what, but we often talk about the why. Very good reasons why we're given the truth that we are to practice. And, And the why question is meant to be clarifying. And the reason we ask it here is because how dumbed down love is. As an English word, love, I mean, we love our moms and we love our Doritos, And Doritos continue to make new flavors all the time. Uh, We love our wives and we love our sports teams. Uh, But not all love is the same. Why are we supposed to live like this with one another? These insider practices. Is this about being nice? Well, anybody can be nice. It doesn't take the life of Jesus in you to be nice. What's here is not niceness, but what inner transformation by the renewing of our minds. Remember verse 2? We looked at that two weeks ago. Look back up at verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We talked about how that renewing of the mind, it's much more holistic than just mental. It's not a, it's not a mental exercise. It's whole person. And as we're, inner transformation is happening... As the passage goes on in the verses we're in, this is what it looks like in practice. I can now, because of Jesus, genuinely love. Verse 9 puts it that way. Let love be genuine. Emphasis on 
genuine. I can now, because of Christ, only in Christ, do I know what genuine love is. Genuine love is self-sacrificing love. And if God engages in self-sacrificial love for you, that's really something. That's exactly what he's done for us in Jesus. And so only in Christ, only because of Christ, can I want God's best for you, enough to even risk offending you if you're dodging God's best for you or, or otherwise maybe AWOL from it, which isn't nice, causing offense isn't. But we won't always be thought nice You do realize we won't always be thought nice among one another if we love one another, as verse 9 says. That we can now do this, love genuinely, is due to Jesus. So looking again at verse 9, let love be genuine. We ask, well, well, how? How do I I get self-sacrificial? Well, a place to start is the rest of the verse. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Same with verse 10. How do you love one another with brotherly affection? Well, start with the second part of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. And and this is not, I'm going to love you if it kills me. I'm just saying the second and third parts of of these verses complement the first parts of each verse. All these one-liners in these verses, they all hang together. You can see themes as you read this within each line, that the the second and the third part of each verse complements the first part. I'm not saying they modify, but they complement it. They all all come together. What we get interested in in following Jesus is not self-hatred. Christians aren't into self-hatred. We're not interested in self-hatred following Jesus. What we're interested in is how to get pulled out of ourselves to where self-sacrificial love, the way God loves, is not just an option for us, but it's something that we're interested in, even when it's difficult, and it is difficult. What we're interested in following Jesus is getting pulled out of ourselves how to stop seeing other people as the problem. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, French philosopher, wrote a play called No Exit, out of which came his famous line, hell is other people. In the play, No Exit, three people arrive in hell and discover the punishment is each other's company. (laughs) Hell was not, after all, according to Jean-Paul Sartre's play, uh, the medieval torture chamber of their imagination full of countless people pressed together Uh, weeping and gnashing their teeth and gnawing their tongues off. Hell was instead, so far as they knew, just them. These three people locked in a drab living room forever. Hell is other people. Sarta's philosophy was not interested in getting anyone pulled out of themselves into others. Because that's hell, according to Jean-Paul Sartre. Because other people are the problem, according to him. Now, people who, I I understand how this goes, people who don't like crowds or who note the exits at every social function and spend the time there longing to walk through them and be done with the evening will often invoke Sarta's words over their sociability. Uh, But I gave you the context of the statement. In the play, it's said by one person looking at only two others. Two others. 
Another famous line, it's attributed to different famous people, is that line about, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. You've heard that one. Some of us would struggle, maybe more than a few of us here, if we're honest, and not because we're the epitome of arrogance or bad people, but some of us would struggle with this instruction in Romans 12 if there were only two other people in the whole world. Maybe you've heard the old joke about the guy who's uh, marooned on the deserted island. And eventually he's rescued after years by himself there. There's nobody else on the island. For years he's been there and the rescuers come and they realize he's built two churches. And they say, what's with the second church? And he says, well, the first church did me wrong. (laughs) And there's a reason why that joke resonates. We're laughing at ourselves in our chronic independence. Those of us who would struggle with the insider practices before us in these verses, even if there were only two other people around us, I want to emphasize that doesn't make us terrible human beings. It means, more likely it means, we've more heavily invested than than we even realize in our own independence. We've we've purchased a lot of shares in individualism, and that's really easy to do in the American cultural context because, you know, one part of the American dream is to get to the place where you don't need others. Let me get to the place in life where I'm so successful, I don't need anybody else. You've probably seen the uh, advertisement for the the car rental place where the, the, I don't know who the actor is, he played Putty on Seinfeld, but he's he's got the real deep voice and he says, uh, you know what I love about renting from them? Is, uh, is I don't have to talk to people if I don't want to, and I don't want to. I just go right out to the, to the bay and pick my car. And the two little agents are kind of waving at him as he goes by. We don't want to be in your way, you know. Now, that's a kind of gospel. That ad is preaching something. The good news of independence. Absolute freedom from others. In my sin... I'm naturally drawn to the discipleship of that gospel, but that gospel lies. By contrast, the gospel that Jesus preached does not lie to insiders or outsiders also. It tells us in order to be fully human, as God intends for us to be, we not only need Jesus to redeem us, but we also need to live among his people in order to access all the resources we need to live in this fallen world, faithful to Jesus. And we're never told this will be a breeze. Loving someone else may be the hardest thing you ever do. But you and I also encounter, as we do so, a lot in ourselves that needs to change. And so we're told, verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That's not easy. It's not easy to abhor what flatters us, and evil often does. Evil can terrify, but it can also seduce. My Bible reading recently had me going through Proverbs, and I don't think I'd ever really noticed in Proverbs 23 the the vividness of this particular language. Just a couple of verses from Proverbs 23. My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways, for a prostitute is a deep pit 
An adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitorous among mankind. That phrase has just been going over and over in my mind. Who wants to be traitorous? That's an awful thing to be. But adultery, which is a great evil, makes that look so good in the moment when the temptation is fiercest, like it's all we could ever want to be fully alive. But if I say that I love God and then try to make room to love evil also, you can see how that counteracts counteracts my saying I love God. So genuine love, love that's genuine, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look self-sacrificial, not for its own sake. But genuine love will hold to the good. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, verse 9. And what happens when you hold to what's good? Even sometimes when, when holding to what's good doesn't make any sense, you kind of want to do what Job's wife said, well, just curse God and die. But you hold fast to the good, and as you hold fast, what happens is you develop resilience, and we need that. We won't love anyone if we don't love uh, or we don't have resilience because everyone you love, everyone, will at some point disappoint you, will at some point fail you. And the temptation when that happens is to dismiss them, go cool on them, Avoid them, reject them, start over, find those who won't fail me. And I I know, listen, some of the ways others fail us are worse in experience than other ways. True, absolutely true. Try not to hear any of this as blanket statements and there's not nuance and context in forming. But can you also hear that for more than a few of us, it's usually not that we're proving our love is too strong for someone else. What we tend to prove is that we're for ourselves in such ways that my default is to be less tolerant over time of the ways people disappoint and fail me. That's why I, I say the text before us is a lifetime work. As you get older... The temptation to go cynical grows larger. You don't just snap your fingers and become loving. You learn to love. And as you learn to love, you correspondingly learn how bad you are at it. And so in learning to love, it can often feel like you're pushing through a lot of your own resistance. But what might be happening when it's tough is you're being pulled out of yourself by God, and that's what it feels like to be pulled out of yourself. I think this is why verse 11 follows on verses 9 and 10. Verse 11 is kind of like a pivot because, you know, almost like suddenly you get, do not be slothful in zeal, verse 11. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This emphasis on zeal and fervency of spirit. Well, In context, every person you love, every person you seek to love in Jesus' name, an insider or an outsider, it's a service to God. Because in the experience of loving as as God directs and resources us for, he doesn't just direct us to it, he resources us for it. In the experience of loving genuinely, you are presenting yourself to God. Whether you're conscious of this or not, you are. 
I mean, that's what verse 1 says in this passage. Let's not read past that just because we took it two weeks ago. We're past 1 and 2. 1 and 2 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this presentation of ourselves when we love insiders and outsiders in in even these self-sacrificial ways as God loves, we find that what God is doing is he's fitting us and he's forming us. And he's even transforming us according to his good purposes for us, which he talks about over in Romans 8 that we looked at months back. What does God have in mind for me in putting this instruction on me? Why, Why did he bring me out of darkness into light and make me accountable to this instruction? It's for my good. And it's not for my good in the sense that, you know, taking a a swig of terrible medicine that makes you just quiver all over when you take it is for your good. It's, It's not, he's not forcing something on us. He's opening something to us. And he's saying, if you, if you come this way, you get to know me better. You get to know me more in, in the, in the fullness of my person. We just, we don't, you will not really, um, Know him without a a deep engagement in biblically formed community, in a community that's under the authority of Scripture. Every person we love, every person we seek to love in Jesus' name is an experience of service to God because we're presenting ourselves for God's purposes to be realized in me. So what does God have in mind in putting this instruction upon me? I want to stick around and find out over a lifetime. I know he doesn't want zeal for its own sake. Now look at the way he puts it. Don't be slothful in zeal. For its own sake, zeal will damage. If you're just zealous to be zealous, you'll do a lot of damage. If I get overly interested in correcting you, for instance and confronting you. You know, if I become the heresy hunter in the church and I'm always on the lookout for the person who's in error, the person who's mistaken, the person who's, you know, put the wet finger in the wind and they're going with the spirit of the day. And some of us, we trend a little bit more that way, particularly if you have theological training sometimes or, or you're, you're active and present in a lot of Bible studies or you had leadership in your campus ministry or whatever. I mean, you, you can be more like that. I can be more like that. But if I develop an unhealthy interest in offering correction and call it love, it's actually love disordered. I, I call this the Axe body spray approach. That's a really overpowering, you know, kind of uh, stench you're putting on yourself. I'm zealous in offering you correction, not for your good, but so... Uh, you see how good I look, how holy I am in coming to you with your faults and putting you in your place, and I come on too strong. Some people mask their jerkiness with the appeal to, well, it's because I love you. Well, keep your love to yourself. I don't want it. But look at how he puts it in verse 11. Don't be slothful in zeal. Verse 11 is put with verses 9 and 10, lest we think love means I just live and let live. That's what love means to a lot of people. That's live and let live. Man, you want that? That's for you. You go for it. That's slothful. See, it's hard to make whatever synonymous with I love you. 
You don't love anyone by shrugging them off. The antithesis to I love you is not I hate you. The antithesis is I don't care. The opposite of love is not uh, hate, it's, it's indifference, it's apathy. Sloth is actually one of the seven deadly sins because it rewards our pulling into ourselves like nothing else. Sloth wants God to be deistic. It wants God to be there but not be personally involved in my life. Sloth is not just old-fashioned laziness, it is, but sloth doesn't want God to be glorified through my life. It's too much to ask of me that I would sacrifice anything of myself. And so sloth gets interested in things less than God. It's not that sloth has no desire. It's just that the desires of sloth are misdirected. Again, I tell you, we are never told that obedience to God will be easy. Nothing in this text before us is easy. In fact, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, that the Bible never wastes its commands. In other words, we're never told in Scripture something we don't need to hear. We're never told, Scripture never tells us, make sure you're breathing, make sure you're eating. No, we're told what to do and not do in areas where we've failed, where our belief is insufficient, areas where we're, we're likely to avoid or neglect. The truth we're told about ourselves by the gospel of Jesus is that we have a vested interest in holding on to ourselves, clutching ourselves, because we naturally seek from sin and the patterns of life in a fallen world what we should seek from our Savior. That's our default, and that default has to be reset. This passage is the reset. The reset happens as we give ourselves to these practices in these verses before us, and we come to see, you know what? Other people are not my problem. My problem is my refusal to get pulled out of myself into other people's lives. I've said before, people, it's not that people are basically good or basically evil. What people are is basically for ourselves in such a way that we opt for evil when it suits us and we neglect the good when it doesn't. Our problem is not our dedication uh, to others. It, it's our dedication to our own independence. We need a reset. And so love, commended in this passage for insiders and outsiders both, love is not primarily an emotion or a way of feeling about someone, though it doesn't bypass your feelings. It's just not primarily about that. What love is primarily about, as it comes to us from God, it's primarily about, it's designed to pull us out of ourselves and into others. And this is a lifetime work for us. It starts among us, it spreads outside us to outsiders it even spreads outside us to those who are strangers to us. And that takes us into our second consideration now briefly, outsider practices, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13, and seek to show hospitality, love of strangers. Stranger is, is a weird word in our culture because we think stranger and you think stranger danger. You know, you, you, you think of the person you don't want to know. Stranger is just the person you don't know. It, it's not necessarily the, the frightening, scary person, though somebody has to go to them too. But love of strangers, strangers to us are not strangers to God and that he knows all hearts. 
I love uh, Rosaria Butterfield's way of putting this in her new book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. That's beautifully put. But now it's, it's going to be those outsiders. Looking at verse 13 with verse 12, it's going to be those outsiders often who are the human cause of whatever tribulation, as verse 12 uses that word, that we experience. This is usually generated by people who don't know us or don't think they care to know us or would rather go with a stereotype of, of who we are, etc. They'll cause tribulation. Again, as I said earlier, the difference between loving insiders and loving outsiders is we can and should expect insiders to love us back. Outsiders, we don't expect that, and yet they need to know the love of God for them. It's given to us to share with them, not to hoard, and that's best done often at a meal, over a meal, at your table or someplace neutral, the gospel does come with a house key. But again, thinking about verse 12 here, alongside and leading into verse 13, look at the terms in verse 12. It's not just that outsiders need to know God loves them and makes a relationship to Jesus available to them. They also need to know the difference that God makes to his own people. They need to see the difference God makes in the people he loves and who love him back. But they have to be around us. They have to be accessible to us in our sufferings also, which we tend to want to hide. They need to see this. They need to see how the mutual love we have for God as insiders in the body of Christ, how this fortifies our hope. They need to hear our faith and our prayers. All this that's in verse 12, they get brought in on, they get close to, by the outsider practices in verse 13. Again, I know half of verse 13 is more of an insider practice, but I think you're with me. Take hope here, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. How many outsiders out there are dying for a sense of hope, something to be hopeful about? We're given this generously. We're given hope generously in the gospel of Jesus because it emphasizes the resurrection of the dead and the certainty of that. But you know what hope requires? It requires some measure of trouble. In order for hope to set and be valued, it requires some measure of trouble and tribulation or hope, or hope just becomes a concept. For it to become real, you've got to go through something hard. Hope is a thing that goes hand in hand with patience. Second part of verse 12, be patient in tribulation. Patience is bearing the burden of hoping. Remember Psalm 40 I took you through last fall? Bearing the burden of hoping. That's what patience, it's a virtue, yes, but it's also a burden. If I'm being patient, tribulation, how long is this going to go on? I want out. I never want it in. Be patient in tribulation. In other words, bear the burden of hoping. Take the baton that's handed off from hope, and patience runs a lap, and then runs another lap. And the coach says, uh, you got one more lap. I thought I was going to hand off to something else. Outsiders need to see this, that that's possible. The difference Jesus makes in and to a life, they, they need to see, outsiders need to see that we're not here for the fire insurance. And we're not here to save America. We're here because Jesus walked out of his tomb. 
And that is the very best thing that any of us have ever experienced. It has opened up to us uh, the glory of God in Christ. If I'm going to love people in the world without loving the world, I'm going to have to have my hopes set on resurrection and be really clear about that. I'm going to have to have my patience strengthened to bear burdens, sufferings of various kinds, trials, tribulations, and my praying is going to need to be constant, and I'm going to have to keep all this where outsiders can get to it. Otherwise, I'm too insular. I'm too pulled into myself or people just like me, and oddly enough, I miss Jesus in that. And who wants to miss Jesus? Who wants anyone to miss Jesus? I don't think any of us, I hope not any of us. One final word, and then we'll pick up here next week. But I want to I cue this up, tee this up for next week. A reset is not a balance. It's getting our eyes on God in such a way that we ask him in this constant praying, would you take off the blinders and peel away the cataracts and the fears and avoidances that, that I have generated that keep me from loving insiders and outsiders in Jesus' name. But don't worry about trying to balance all this. One pastor has a great caution for us. He writes this, his words, quote, when we attempt to balance grace and truth, he's thinking of John 1, when we attempt to balance grace and truth, we get the worst of both, never the best of either. Jesus was not the balance of grace and truth. Jesus represented a full dose of both. He was full-on grace and full-on truth. He never dumbed down truth, and he never turned down grace. That's a tall order. And that's why you need him to be your savior before he can become your example. The same applies to us, though we will very imperfectly go and do likewise. I'm going to keep working this line with you as we work through these lines next Sunday. But listen. We're not called by Jesus to balance love for the insider and love for the outsider. We're called by him to give as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of Jesus and then let his way, his truth, his life set and supply our way and life until he returns. And it will be the hardest, most demanding thing we'll ever give ourselves to, loving anyone in Jesus' name and interest. But at the same time, it's the best, most rewarding thing you can give yourself to because we've already been given for. Because the love that we utilize that's given to us as a resource, it wasn't something we generated. We love because he first loved us. Now, it's noon. Spaghetti is awaiting I don't want to keep you too long, so let's just stand and pray and have a benediction. Father, thank you for being gracious with us, being good to us. Thank you for the love that we uh, have been given first by you. Help us, Lord, as we navigate this world, which is so tempting and so toxic, uh, so tricky in so many ways. Um, we feel like we're just flapping in the wind sometimes. But Lord, the, the flagpole holds, and you have, you have tethered us to it. You have shown us what is good. You have shown us what is true. 
You have, you have showered, lavished your grace upon us. And you give us these practices, not as some laundry list to, to keep up with as like a uh, checking off the duties of the day, but so that uh, every practice that's here, aimed at insiders, aimed at outsiders, it, it, it permeates uh, the muscle and the, and the core of who we are. And, and when we're not doing these things, we're, we're, we're quickened by your spirit. We want to we repent. We want to get around people who are doing this well and learn from them and sometimes just draft from them. Lord, some of us, uh, we, we struggle so deeply with uh, the Scriptures ever asking something from us because we're so afraid of going back into rigidity and legalism. Please free us from that. Help us to understand the difference between a walk that's informed by truth and one that was informed by a, a self-beholding gospel of the past. Lord, free us to be obedient. Help us to understand that paradox, but not just understand it as some mental thing we admire. Help us to put it into practice. The days are short. The time is short. Your return is near. And Lord, we welcome your return. But until you come back, this day is given us to keep, uh, to keep searching and seeking and, and following you. Searching and seeking after the things you've already revealed to us. And we pray we'll do that. Lord, thank you for the afternoon and the evening ahead of us. Thank you for this church and for uh, the opportunities we've had to look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.